Come in, Ocean Sailor. Come in, Ocean Sailor. The Ocean Sailor Podcast. Brought to you by Ocean Sailor Magazine and Kraken Yachts. This podcast was recorded during the coronavirus pandemic. All participants adhered to social distancing and coronavirus guidelines at all times. Welcome to the Ocean Sailor podcast with me, Dick Durham. And me, Dick Beaumont. This is our very first one. Very exciting. So I suppose we'd better start by telling you a bit about ourselves. I mean, why would you lend your ears to Dick Durham? Who the hell is he? Or Dick Beaumont, for that matter. Well, Dick Durham, that's me speaking. Uh, I've been sailing for 12 years, uh, since I was 12, I should say. Um, I write a column for Yachting Monthly. Um, I've been a yachting journalist for the best part of 25 years, I suppose. I've write for Classic Boat magazine, Yachting Monthly, and I've written about eight books on sailing. And I'm the owner and founder of uh, Kraken Yachts and, and Ocean Sailor and a lifetime yachtsman. I've sailed uh, a long way around this world and lived on my boat uh, while I'm doing it for a large part of my life. Um, so that's our credentials. <laughs> Hopefully you'll find this interesting. And the reason we got together is a bit of a story in itself. As, it, as usual, it began in the pub. Yeah, it was about three years ago, wasn't it, Dick? Something like that, yes. Uh, I happened to be in the, in the Crooked Billet pub in Old Lee, which is both our hometown. Um, the seawater laps against the windows there, so we were sort of musing about the ocean deeps uh, when I meet this giant bearded fellow and we get into conversation. Uh, uh, it turns out that... Uh, We've lived in parallel lives, uh, Dick, isn't it? You live only... Yeah, there was some very strange things. It turned out um, we both drank in the uh, crooked billet since we were teenagers. It would be inappropriate to say quite how young teenagers we were, probably, but um, which is in Leon C. Definitely. And, uh, you know, we uh, we instantly got on and then we found out we've, we've kind of been divers, we've been sailors. It was great. We were both members of a Sea Scout troop. We've both been divers, although Dick's done a lot more than I have, and we've both been sailing all our lives. Dick, far more than I have, as he's crossed oceans, whereas I'm more of a coasting man. But anyway, the, the, the chatter carried on and grew and grew, uh, and and I asked Dick why he was suddenly back in this country, because, of course, he'd been sailing, um, well, in the Far East, China, um, Indian Ocean. Suddenly he's back in Leon Sea, where, the, where there isn't much water. So what was he doing here, I said? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I'd, I'd just uh, completed uh, quite a long voyage, 35,000 miles. Um, I spoke to a good friend of ours, uh, a guy called John Costimilla, who's now sales uh, director for uh, uh, Kraken Yachts. And, um, and he told uh, me all of you. Um, and that's where we wound up having a beer and uh, realising that we've got an awful lot of uh, common interests and an awful lot of uh, common beliefs, I think, is fair to say. And what was interesting was that here you were, we're the same sort of age, both in our dotage, you could say. Um, but oh, anyway, steady, steady, steady. <laughs> steady on. Talk for yourself. Yeah, you're right. Well, I will talk for myself. I've got my retirement yacht, which is the perfect estuary boat with a lift keel, and you were trying to find your perfect ocean-going yacht for your family, and this led you into the discovery that 
it perhaps didn't exist. Well, no, it's not it didn't exist. It was that uh, I mean, my history goes back to building my first boat when I was uh, seven uh, in 1978. Um, and I built that boat out of steel in back in that day. Um, and there was quite a few people. This is in a small boatyard in Benfleet Creek, uh, Dauntless Boatyard. And there were five other boat other guys building their boats there to go off and sail around the world. That's quite changed a lot over the, the last 20 or 30 years. It's different. So they were just to cu- come in there, Dick. So this is what, ni- early 1970s? Uh, no, uh, early, late 70s, late. 1978. So there were, what, half a dozen people trying to fix their dream of going offshore and they were building a type of boat. Did they differ very much? or No, they were all stunningly similar. Right. Um, every boat uh, had a long keel. Every boat had a fully protected rudder. And everybody was searching for the ultimate bomb-proof solution of what it should be built out of. The, built, the boat I was building was, was steel. Um, a friend of mine and two, well, three other friends of mine were building in ferro-concrete, another guy built in steel, and one guy was building in, in GRP. Uh, GRP was all pretty early, in right, early days of, course, of yes, GRP yes, still, then. Yes, and, but, and, uh, but they were all integral keels, were they? Yeah, all integral keels, all uh, fully protected rudders, all and, and people considered... I'm sure people considered things from a different standpoint. And I think that's incredibly important. How do you go off and have one of these amazing adventures with your family, often, uh, worrying about, well, I wonder if my boat will sink? You can't do that. You can't enjoy that. You can't put your family at that much risk. And this is the pivotal point, isn't it? Because at that stage, when you were building your steel boat, there were other guys building boats and they were bomb-proof. Yeah, everybody was bomb-proof. And here's a, here's a very interesting point. But why did, just to come back, Dick, why did you uh, not continue with your steel boat, which you felt was bomb-proof? Why did you, why did you have to go and build another one? Because you got older and you wanted a more comfortable boat? or Yeah, well, I, it, actually, you know, we sailed off and my, I sailed off with my young family and uh, had a lot of fun for about 15 years or 12, 12 to 15 years. But then business got in the way uh, and family life changed. Um, and the next thing you find out, OK, I'm not getting any time to actually do any of these things. But I have always been fairly focused on wanting to go off. And and re- the whole purpose of being involved in business for me was to fund going off and sailing around the world. But so, but, but, uh, but by the time you could afford to do that, you'd... You were then you'd sold your boat because you had to concentrate on business. You'd sold yeah, the bomb-proof right. boat. I wasn't built. using it, and it's a steel boat. Right, being a steel boat, they are fantastically uh, strong. I don't think there's another material you could build out of that's as strong as that. But they need huge amount of maintenance, which is a problem. So I sold that boat and thought, well, I'll start again uh, later. So you sold the boat. You concentrated on your business. Raising the family, yeah, and then when you were free of all those commitments, it was time to go back to sea, to go back to the adventure, and that's when you discovered what. Well, I it, no, at that point there were companies around that were, and we're talking fifteen years ago. There were a few companies still building with integral keels. For me, you got to start with: can this boat sink? 
if he if in, fir- in the first place you've solved that question, the rest of it all fits in fairly easy. But can this boat sink? Is it bomb-proof? Bomb it's got to start with, can the keel come off? Is the rudder fully protected? And is the hull thick enough to take collision with all the kind of stuff that's out there? And, and I have found that incredibly difficult. I did to find somebody that was uh, uh, building in that style. And who was that? It was a company in Taiwan called Tayana Yachts, um, and that worked out well because they had kept to uh, old core designs, um, and uh, yeah, they 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 built uh, a boat, um, and it was a fifty-eight footer. I I bought, um, I modified it, worked with them on the modifications, but yeah, the boat was then to me, and and was actually because I went through. You know, sailed hundreds of thousands of miles in it, or more than one hundred and fifty thousand miles in that boat, um, and uh, through lots and lots of circumstances that would definitely have challenged or compromised um, the more modern day cruisers that we see around now. The boat was bombproof. I started from the place I was safe, and that's really uh, and and that was all great. Um, why, my did that, why did that bigger. have to go? Well, my family got bigger. It was, it was, <laughs> I had 15 years of great fun on the boat, sailed out everywhere around the world, well, not everywhere around the world, a long way around the world, uh, sailing around the world, not necessarily around the world. And um, he, the boat was great, but oh, all of my family turned up in Australia uh, and nobody fitted on board. Excellent. So that's when you decided to have a look round for a bigger cruising boat that was bomb-proof. And that had to have the integral keel, the Skeghan rudder, huge layup to yep. be strong. Yeah, and a uh, massive and a, rig. And a good rig. Yeah, that's uh, right. And I couldn't find it. You couldn't find it's it. It's simply, Tayano were out of business by that time. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I couldn't find what I was looking for. Um, so... How I suppose it, I hope it illustrates how fundamental I feel this is because I went into the extreme of contracting uh, a designer, a yacht designer. Who, and who, who was that? Kevin Dibley, who I knew, uh, and, uh, and having him built the kind of boat, uh, having him design, I should say, the kind of boat um, that I knew I needed. Um, and and I went back to uh, uh, a, a boatyard in Taiwan to have that boat built, um, and that was the first Kraken, although actually at that time there were, I had no idea or concept of wanting to start uh, Kraken yachts. So how did that come about? As I understand it, you then had your dream boat, your 66-foot white dragon, she's called. Beautiful boat, I've seen her, I've sailed on her. Um, you brought her back, I think, from the Far East uh, to the Mediterranean. Is that right? And and is that en route? I think she turned a few heads. Is that what happened? No, no, no. It, <laughs> during the period of time I was designing this boat with Kevin and uh, specifying it, um, obviously, uh, when you've been sailing a lifetime, you meet quite a lot of other yachtsmen. And in telling people what I was doing... Um, quite a few of them said, "Yeah, terrific. Will you do? Will you build me one?" Um, oh, so, so you, so the request to build a Kraken yacht began while yours was still in build. Yeah, well, yeah, actually, the, I didn't realise when I was building White Dragon uh, that she was going to be the first Kraken. 
What actually happened during that period of time, all of these friends, and I was telling all these friends about the things that I really believed in, obviously with total commitment and uh, conviction and, and passion, um, and one guy in particular, the guy that I knew from Hong Kong, a guy called David Wilkinson, didn't know him very well, uh, he bugged me and he absolutely kept on and on and on about why didn't I build, why wouldn't I build him a smaller version? And, uh, and it, was, it then became clear to me, well, if I'm suffering from a problem that I can't find knowing what boats I need out there being built, well, neither can anybody else. So I felt that there was not just a business gap in the market, not just a niche, but I felt there was a real need for something that really went back to the first principles, which were start with a boat uh, that can't sink. Yes, and so you, in a way you were, in, <laughs> you were not so much reinventing the wheel as reinventing the keel. Yeah, you know, yes, that's right. I mean, um, the, the first boat, in fact, White Dragon, doesn't have the zero keel that's been discussed um, you know, and most people do know about now, it didn't have that. It had an integral kill. It couldn't come off. It had a massive skeg in front of the rudder so that it could uh, take any impact of things that we might hit or grounding. I've had people say, oh, nobody ever, nobody that's a good uh, yachtsman should ever run a ground, yachtswoman should ever run a ground. Uh-huh. But go, yeah, that's a joke. And, you know, go and sail in uncharted waters and see how you get on because it's just not, it's going to happen. And so you've got to, there's no good praying and hoping that things that if you keep doing them enough are inevitably going to happen, don't happen. There's no point starting there. You might just as well say, you know, okay, let's plan for the worst. So what year then was White Dragon your first um, Kraken, in fact, the world's first Kraken? Uh, What year did she launch and where did she go to? She launched in 2016 after an 18-month build programme that took four years. Okay. <laughs> so we started back in uh, 2012 with the first discussions with uh, Kevin. Um, it took a lot longer because we were doing something new um, and there was lots of, you know, one step forwards and two steps back, um, unfortunately, and, uh, and eventually launched in 2016. Yeah. And she was then based, in fact, I think she was built in Hong Kong, was she not? She was built in Taiwan. Oh, she was built in Taiwan. But then your company, which by now you realise you're going to start a company to build Krakens, smaller ones, and ones the same size as your one, 66 if possible, and that was going to be in Hong Kong. Why was that? Well, because we, uh, I knew uh, the yards in China and Taiwan um, were going to be able to build and produce the moulds. They're very expensive um, at the right kind of uh, cost to enable us to not just build a 66, but build a 50, a 58 and a 66, which I think the 50 and the 58 is much more is much more a regular size for uh, Blue Water families to go off cruising. The 66, my 66, came about because I'm lucky enough to have my son and my daughter, son-in-law and grandkids all want to come out sailing. So I needed a bit more space, and that's really where it came about. But the principles have to be the same. And, and I think that's, a, that's quite an important point because I think 
it's it's important, and the message I want to try and get across to people is this isn't about cracking yachts. This podcast and Ocean Sailor isn't about uh, cracking yachts. It's about what do you really need to know and what kind of a boat do you really need to go off and have uh, a fantastic adventure across the world and its its oceans? People have got to find out that they compromise some things. You are lending your ears to Ocean Sailor Podcast and I thank you for that. So please find us on Twitter uh, or at Ocean Sailor Podcast or be part of the conversation by using... Hashtag Ocean Sailor Podcast. So in a way then, Dick, your experience, um, not only sailing all your life and having sailed many, many miles offshore, when it came to the time to, of your life to enjoy yourself, enjoy your sailing, you found the boat wasn't there. But you acquired all this knowledge. You had a lot of experience reading the right books, as we all did when we were younger, um, about ocean sailing, about cruising, about being, um, you know, independent uh, and self-reliant. And all of that well, yeah, kind so, of sorry. was missing. Yeah, yeah. I, I, sorry to interrupt you. And that was another difference. And that, that's actually what's led on to Ocean Sailor, uh, the magazine, and this podcast. Because back in that day, there were dozens of books about yacht construction which then led on to uh, blue water sailing or ocean sailing. Blue water sailing is a kind of a later term, I think, um, and world cruising. There were loads of books. There was loads of books about how you should do it, what you need to know, how you need to build it, dozens of books. They don't seem to be there any longer. And now people are relying, I believe, uh, for their information on going to a boat show and talking to a salesman. And, yeah, you know... There's some what, nonsense what, being what, talked. What is wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with getting information from a boat uh, from a boat show, of course, and for salesmen at the boat show. But the the truth of the matter is that go, the job of crossing oceans and blue water cruising and living on board is a specific element of sailing. It's not general sailing. It's not what everybody's going to do, and there is no substitute for experience and if you're going to want to find out about uh, what a blue water boat a blue water yacht or an ocean cruising yacht needs you've got to talk to somebody that's done it and actually that's become fewer and fewer and the books uh, are not being written as they were so I felt that there was a gap here that some a place that needed to be filled um, and that's really how it all came about that uh, you know, we then started Ocean Sailor um, with your good, kind self uh, from the pub meeting um, and your expertise in that in the field of journalism. And that and that itself began, if you recall, with a, a press release um, from something called Kraken Yachts, which although <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'd met you, but I hadn't heard of Kraken Yachts. And this was handed to me. Say, this guy's in your area. Check it out. And it was and that's when I realised that um, you were in reinventing the keel, let's put it that way, with the integral keel, the Skekhun Rabbit. No, <laughs> I remember that first meeting. You asked, We sent out a press release about the Zero Keel um, and uh, you asked to do an interview with me, which you wanted to do t- down at Southampton. Um, and uh, that was going to be videoed, I think, for my classic boat, was it? Yes. Have I got that right? Um, and uh, you, so you want to do this interview. 
<laughs> and we, you set us up on this nice uh, bluff overlooking uh, the marina, big, huge marina. Um, and uh, and your first opening question was, uh, well, I've got this press release, so you're telling me all of these boats, and you swept your arm across two or three thousand boats. All of these boats uh, are not fit for purpose. <laughs> Yeah, so... Um, so I, I did drop you in it a bit, and I had to apologise for that. Well, but it seemed a fair question, because let's face it, we were on the Hamble. That's the, got, yeah. that's the busiest river in the UK. There are 5,000 yachts there. Uh, there yeah, will it be... was, it, Dick, it was a totally fair question. It caught me off balance. Somewhere, somewhere from within my subconscious, I managed to muster up, tell me the purpose, and I'll tell you if they're fit for it. Yes. Um, but I, did rem- I do remember sat- thinking at the first time, oh, this guy's not so bloody friendly. <laughs> I didn't get an easy ride. Well, but I'm, it did I'm... bring out a lot, didn't it? It, it did. It did. Throw- I have to say, and there I am, I'm supposed to know these things, but I didn't know that even uh, some of the new major designers in Scandinavia, we won't mention any names, uh, had twin rudders. And you told me that, and I was um, absolutely gobsmacked because I had no idea. I mean, I well, don't well, do the it, new yeah, boat. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't until I started to look for the uh, what was then White Dragon, it turned out to be White Dragon, till I started to look for that, I first went to names who we won't mention here that we naturally associated with blue water cruising. And I found out, to my massive surprise, that they'd actually all moved... They'd actually all moved out of what I consider to be the proper blue water cruising market. And, as you've just said, introduced uh, things like uh, twin rudders, bolt-on keels, straight stems... um, and were clearly really nothing more, in my view, than more expensive performance cruisers. And the two are not the same thing. And and why has the market gone that way, virtually totally? I mean, it's virtually uh, exclusively that, isn't it? it yeah, it's it is. It's bolt-on keels, it, it, it's twin rudders. It is. It's quite interesting. I think that what's occurred is if you go back to some of the um, founders of the companies that that we know, they've all, bar none, either died or sold on uh, to develop to, to, com- to uh, companies and investment companies, perhaps to uh, develop the business the businesses financially further. That means you need a bigger market, and the blue water cruising, ocean sailing, world cruising, liverboard market is actually relatively small. So we kind of, uh, have a, uh, we've established that in Kraken Yachts. All we're ever going to try and do is build 10 boats a year. As soon as you start having, having to fill an order book with 30, 50, 100, 200 boats a year, you've then, you're then got the tail wagging the dog, haven't you? Yes, I see. Uh, if you see what I mean. So then you're under the cosh of production you're uh, on the, and all the pressures that you're come You're under that. the cosh of producing a, a profit, and a, an ever-growing profit, um, and it's not the reason we ever started cracking yachts. I've been fortunate to have had quite successful life in business. It's not my, that wasn't ever my motivation. Uh, I really did want to build a, the kind of boat that I could tell people, yeah, you can you can sail across this ocean, you can go wherever you want, and it won't let you down. That's really what uh, the motive was. So the the company began in Hong Kong, 
Uh, it is moved now, I think, to Turkey. You brought your own boat, White Dragon, to Turkey. Yeah. Uh, and I think that she's now based there. Is she at the yard that crackers are now being built? Yeah, I, I met you not long. Having produced and um, built uh, White Dragon, uh, I met you uh, just shortly after I'd done um, quite a, a surprising voyage as its uh, maiden voyage. I took her 35,000 miles from Hong Kong, across the, in, uh, the Indian Ocean, down, down through the China Seas, across the Indian Ocean, uh, round Cape of Good Hope, and uh, south to north in the Atlantic, and then right the way across the Mediterranean as well. It's a 35,000-mile trip. I did it for two reasons. I did it because it was looked like it was going to be a lot of fun, but I also did it because I can't really see how you can say, here, look, I'm going to tell you about this different boat to what everybody else is building, and it's better, and it's stronger, and it can do this stuff without proving it. So I proved it. So it was one hell of a shakedown cruise. <laughs> it was a hell of a shakedown cruise. Vertical, the, the learning curve was vertical. The, the, the funny thing is, just to mention at this point, well, perhaps we're mentioning that, I did actually wind up inadvertently, of course, and that's how all these accidents at sea happen, testing the, one of the very core concepts, which was the protected rudder. As we, uh, we were about um, seven or 800 miles from St Helena in the South Atlantic, uh, in, quite a heavy, in quite heavy weather, it was about 30 knots of wind with a four metre sea, um, we were doing nine knots under good sail. We were going really well, and we stopped. Everybody flew through the boat. One guy gashed his head. One of the crew gashed his head. You stopped dead. We stopped dead. The boat's forty-five ton, and she then we then sailed on and thought, oh, okay, wonder what that was. But that was checked below deck, no ingress of water. Checked everything else, steering still working fine, autopilot still on. Um, and, uh, and it wasn't until we got to St Helena and I put my diving gear on, I'm quite into diving, and I went and checked the boat out and I found that the skeg had taken a massive hit and although there's a 12 mil uh, stainless steel beam down the centre of the skeg, the bottom of the skeg and the shoe was actually bent out of alignment by 20 degrees. Good grief. Now, when we, I had to take her out of the water, we couldn't sail on. We might have been able to sail on, but, you know, it's not the way to start. But nevertheless, you'd sailed to there from the impact, which was how many Yeah, miles? We, we sailed about another seven or 800 miles. <laughs> That's not bad going. No, it? no, and, and probably, in, in fairness, we probably could have carried on because, you know, when we act, but we didn't know that until we took the rudder off um, so you the took the rudder down. off in St Helena. She yeah, we lifted out. her out of the water. Yeah. Oh, okay. that was a frightening experience. And, and was it? Do you have it straightened then, the skeg? Or? Yeah, and that's quite interesting. This is the point I was going to make: is that um, the press that straightened the skeg that down the centre uh, racked up to seven ton. The pressure was seven ton to straighten grief. it again. Really, that's, I mean, that's so it, it took a. We we don't know what it was. We suspect it was a, a sleeping whale just below the surface, um, because there was no other other ostensible damage that you might see if, if we'd hit a container or something like that. Right. But you know, we've hit a lot of stuff. Uh, so I've hit a lot of stuff sailing around this world. 
Um, there's logs and there's pallets and there's containers. So coming back anyway to White Dragon's epic voyage back from China, so you then relaunch from St Helena and you carry on up the Atlantic and arrive in Turkey where you then start Kraken Yacht's European yard, its main yard. I think you're no longer building in Hong Kong. Well, yeah, okay. That's quite an interesting story that goes with that. We had now begun production in China. The yard uh, that we'd used first in uh, Taiwan was no longer in existence, so we moved production to China. The um, and, and everything was hunky-dory. We went into production of the Kraken 50 for David Wilkinson, the guy I men- mentioned, um, and it wasn't until, despite agreeing with the factory and we thought agreeing with the Chinese uh, Marine Department that we could carry out the kind of sea trials that we wanted to do, um, which is uh, a month worth of sea trials, including a 500-mile continuous voyage. It's a different kind of boat. It's got to have a different kind of test. Um, it wasn't well, until... that must be unique in itself, must well, it? Well, yeah, it, it, and that was the problem. Because they were a lot, they were building lots of yachts in China, but none of. But when we came to launch it and do do the actual sea trials, um, the Chinese Marine Department uh, gave us forty eight hours, and so I knew straight away. Hang on, this is not going to work. But even so, forty eight hours would have been enough to give you a hundred mile. Now, they wouldn't allow us to go outside the borders of the port either. Right. So they, China Marine Department wasn't up for allowing us to do any of the fundamental tests that I felt were necessary. And we had to take off on a 500 mile, which is about what it is, voyage to Hong Kong in what I consider to be an untried and untested boat. Right. Now, it made that voyage fantastic, and it was good. the boat was good. That was the first Kraken built in Hong Kong? In China. Sorry. That was the first boat built in China, yeah. How and many were built in China? Uh, two. Two, OK. Yeah. And that, at that stage, you then moved production to Turkey because of the restrictions in China? Well, I was sailing on this trip um to uh, across the from uh, hong kong we were the problems we were getting were happening while i was on that trip and by the time i got to turkey i uh, i knew i'd got some serious problems and i wasn't really not with the boat but with the chinese authorities yeah with doing the kind of tests that uh, the, the kind of tests that i felt were absolutely mandatory for a blue water boat Yes, I mean, the problem was by the time uh, I arrived in uh, Turkey sailing White Dragon there, the problems in China had become quite intractable. Uh, Not only didn't they want to allow us to do the sea trials that I felt were absolutely mandatory, they didn't even want to allow us to step the mast and test the rig and test the sail. Um, And all of the boat companies I then found out, all of the boat companies uh, in China, um, well-established boatyards, building good quality boats, all of them were exporting the the boat as 95 or 90 or 80% finished um, and shipping them off to America or wherever it was for somebody out there to try and finish the boat and step the mast and and then commission and sea trial it. And it's just not going to work for this kind of a boat. You know, the boat really has to be completely tested um, before it's uh, handed over to uh, the client and 
and you need the yard there working with us. So we arrived in, in Turkey, to be honest, with a, a thought that I might have to shut Kraken uh, because I couldn't, I, I, I couldn't work out how I was going to be able to do this. Well, it, it's good that you didn't have to, uh, but why did you choose Turkey? I chose Turkey because I started to tell a friend of mine, uh, Reni Tirmasen, um, who has been a good buddy over 30 years of sailing, I started to tell him the problems that we got and the problems we were having. And he said, look, Dick, you can't give this up because it's, you know, us sailors, we know, we know it's needed um, and uh, you should build it in Turkey. Because he's based there. Well, he, it, he, he understands it. it. But what I didn't know at that point is there's a region in uh, Turkey, Tuzla, which is which is almost, you would say, a complete parody of what uh, Southampton was for the original yacht building industry in the UK. It's 30 yards, all building sailing yachts and different types of yachts and big power boats and super yachts. They're very big into super yachts. And their craftsmen were second to none, particularly their uh, wood craftsmanship, their stainless steel, and their understanding. So there was then an infrastructure of suppliers. There was an infrastructure of uh, uh, of technicians and of people that really understood how to uh, how to build a boat, because it's not it, it's not you know I know that's how it's being done in in a lot of areas of the world. Um, where essentially the people are building the boats on a production line, but we're not building that kind of a boat. We we need people that understand yachts, understand the sea, um, and understand the rigours and the quality of that build. So in Turkey, what you found is not just an infrastructure that's already there, but one that uh, supplies has the ability to supply a custom-built boat. Yeah, that that's right. The, the yard that we... Uh, eventually wound up uh, settling down with uh, and our joint venture partner is a company called Sumarine who previously built uh, super yachts um, 30 metres 20, 28 metres about the smallest they built up to 45 metres and uh, yeah So you're happily established now at Tuzla in Turkey which I think is not far from uh, Istanbul is that right? Yeah, it's just outside Istanbul, which in itself is a fantastic place to of visit. Course. And you've launched how many from there? Or we haven't launched there yet. We have one. The first boat is going into build there, um, which is a Kraken 50 version 2. Um, that's in build, I should say, already. Um, and it will launch around about the end of March. So not very far off now. We're really excited and looking looking forward to that because the version 2 has got uh, even further uh, enhancements and um, refinements for Blue Water Cruising than the version one uh, had. So um, nothing but uh, Turkish delight for you then, Dick. <laughs> God, Dick, that's, that's, <laughs> ter that's terrible. Someone yeah. had to say it. <laughs> yeah. Did they? Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll tell you what, it, it, I, it has been a, a wonderful breath of fresh air because the, the yard is a can-do yard, not a can't-do yard. The people, the Turkish people, have really supported us fabulously well and and, and are very friendly and very, very uh, diligent people. So, you know, it's working out extremely well, much better than I would have hoped. 
and I'm very happy now that uh, we have found our home uh, in in Turkey. Yeah. So you're listening to Ocean Sailor Podcast with me, Dick Durham and uh, Dick Beaumont. Um, please don't forget to subscribe and, and also hit the like uh, button from wherever you're getting your podcast. Uh, we're now going to talk about Ocean Sailor magazine and how that came about. Um, and you can get it. It's a free magazine. You can just go on to www.oceansailormagazine.com and get this free magazine, all 40 pages of it. But uh, let's go over now back to Dick Beaumont and ask him, Dick, if you would tell us why did, why and how did Ocean Sailor come about? Well, Ocean Sailor came about because I felt that uh, it was... Im- I, I felt that the message and the, and the gap that we were trying to fill is different to uh, the, the, the industry as it stands at the moment and the yachts that are being built. Uh, and I, I'm very clear as to what those differences are. The boat has to have an integral keel, it has to have a protected rudder, it has to have a strong hull, and it has to have a bomb-proof rig. But there are more, there's much more to it than that. Um, but they're the four core issues that you start with. Um, and uh, if you remember, you asked to do an interview with me um, subsequent to the first one, um, so we didn't fall out that badly. <laughs> uh, and you asked uh, you asked to do an interview with me about what I believed was a blue water cruising boat. What was it? Um, when we finished that, uh, you said, well, you've named 10 key points. I'm going to call this article the Ten Commandments. Um you then had quite a bit of difficulty getting it published. I spoke to other uh, journalists and other um, uh, sort of media entities um, wanting to get these points out, and I ran into a brick wall. I ran into a brick wall because I had obviously not taken on board the issue that most of the points that uh, I believe to be and, and design issues and, and build issues that that are critical for a blue water cruising boat are are not actually built in the specification of most boats being built today. Who happen to be the people providing the interest, uh, the um, advertising revenue? So um, I thought, well, how do we get this message out? And then, um, and because it was called the Ten Commandments and not wishing to sound like Moses, I did nevertheless batter the editor of uh, Yachty Monthly over the head and said, Theo, you've really got to listen to this because, I mean, this guy, I said, I'm an objective journalist. I've been a yachting journalist for God knows how long, 20 years, 20 plus years, 25 years. I've been sailing since I was 12 years old. Uh, I said, I am objective, but I know he's singing from the right hymn sheet. So, you know, please hear us out and have a look at it. And in the end, I think they did publish it. They did. We had to change a few bits about... We had to be not quite as perhaps as adamant as I would have liked to have been. And that was really the point, because I really do believe that you must uh, not compromise on those four core issues and that you can then, once you've got those, build other issues around it that really make the boat uh, uh, bomb-proof. And I think that's the starting place. And I, I wanted to try and get the message to people that you should compromise size, 
You should compromise equipment, but you shouldn't compromise the basic elements of the boat that are going to get you across oceans. And I was struggling to get that message out. I talked to quite a lot of other uh, publishers, quite a lot of other, and they all said, yeah, Dick, that's, you're dead right. We can't publish it. So once again, you're in the situation. Uh, you want you're in the situation where uh, you couldn't find at one time you couldn't find the right boat. Now you're in a position where you can't find the right magazine or at least the right public. <laughs> you, you, you can't. Yeah, I didn't, so, yeah. so you're a man who says, right, I'm going to have the boat I want. I'm going to have the magazine I want to read. And so you've started. Well, it wasn't the magazine that I wanted to read. I just felt that we really had to find a way of getting this message out to people. I was told by a guy at a Sydney Boat Show, a customer that I'd explain all these things to, I was told by him he'd just come off of the stand of a, a very common, very well-known production boat company in France, and he said to me, well, you've got to guess what I've just been told. And the long and the short of it, not to go around the beat around the bush too much, was the guy who asked the salesman um, how this boat was going to fare in heavy weather. And the answer he got back is, you'll never find out, sir, because this boat so far she'll outrun the weather. And at that point, I really did think, oh, my God, surely people are not believing this. But then you look at the evidence of the kind of boats that people unfortunately do uh, try and head off across the uh, oceans in, and actually, and then you think about, well, where do they get their information from? And you can easily see there's this big hole. There's this big gap that's there. Where do they get that from? Which you're hoping Ocean Sailor magazine is filling. And yeah, the core, it's, it's, so it's core issues then, Ocean Sailor's core issues. Uh, I mean, uh, we know about Kraken. I think you're going now beyond Kraken. You're talking about what the leap motif of ocean sailing is not just krakens but it's got to be an integral keel it's got to be a protected rudder it's got to be thick layup it's got to be a certain rig it's got to be there are loads of other things it's not really a certain rig dick it's a strength of rig okay you can you can keep a mast up using three mil wire um you you need 15 16 mil wire to hold that same mast up in the middle of a, a big atlantic blow or a storm and so it's really you know everybody's got their different ideas about what type of rigs uh, are best i've got a clear idea about that now but it that's it's really the integrity of and returning to this whole message it's got to be bomb proof and it doesn't matter to me whether somebody says, okay, well, of course, I'd be delighted they buy a Kraken yacht because it's got all of these features. But actually, if you push, if you push the boat a little bit further out, <laughs> pardon the pun, actually, there's a lot of boats out there um, that do fit the bill. Unfortunately, most of them, if not all of them, were built more than 20 years ago. That's when it all changed. The production boat market kind of destroyed the industry that uh, and the names that we knew, like Nicholson and Bowman and, and Contessa and Van der Ste You know, there was, when I was looking for the right boat to go off and build 
back in 1978, 1980, uh, there were dozens of boats you could choose, and they all had this, those features. Uh, but then all of a sudden, really, in my view, two things happened. First, what happened is that, uh, as I've already said, um, the production boats company started, and they found cheaper methods of building the same size boat. Principally, that's it. They not used a nice uniform-shaped hull, bolted a keel on it, hung a rudder out the back, there's your boat, off you go. And is that is then, I mean, it's, it's obvious, I suppose, but that is cheaper then, is it, than yeah, having it's, it's a, a keel moulded into the... Yeah, it's, it's massively cheaper yeah, much to cheaper. do it that yeah. way, which is why it was started to but do that your boats, your boats, I mean, they still come in. I mean, I shouldn't really be blowing your trumpet for you, but then <laughs> only the no, queen, go, only go, the do, queen, do, only do, the do, queen do, has do. somebody to blow a trumpet for. Or we have to blow our own, or you have to blow your own. Uh, but I'll blow your one for you this time. And that is, I mean, the thing is that the the Kraken is still a very competitively priced boat, is it not? Yeah, it is. It's if a bit you're of, in that market. to be honest, Dick, it's a bit of an illusion. We know we need to get boats out there around the world. Right. So if to do that. The boats uh, are very, very competitively priced now. Um, my longer-term so, so plan is they won't be. <laughs> They're going to go up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, coming back to Ocean Sailor, what we wanted to do is build a community or we wanted to give the, the community that exists of existing blue water cruisers and sailors information that they wanted um, but also, we wanted to try and encourage people to poke their nose a bit further out outside the port and don't be so scared of going out and across an ocean. You know, um, we're going to cover uh, uh, in a podcast soon the mindset that's needed for going and crossing an ocean, or the skipper's uh, mindset. But principally, there is real no, there's really no difference from sailing uh, for three days with a day in the middle or 10 days in the middle or 20 days in the middle. There's no real difference to it. Um, and, and we want to try and explain to people how they can do it and feel 100% safe while they're doing it. And, and the answer is, as I say, compromise the size, compromise the equipment, don't compromise the core qualities that are necessary. Fair enough. So Ocean Sailor a magazine then, which I believe, uh, it, it, well, I, I believe I know, it, it is published um, on the first day of each month, is it not? Yeah, it comes out on the Fisher Free magazine, you, as you know, yeah. you being the editor. <laughs> but, but it, it, no, it's a free magazine. Um, we don't carry any advertising uh, from any outside source. It is sponsored by Kraken, so we do carry the Kraken story. Um, and uh, the it, it isn't it's not aimed at selling Kraken yachts. It's aimed at providing people with the information they need to go off and sail around the world. So, we, you know, we cover um, dozens of, uh, of different subjects uh, that are not, you know, about weather, about wave patterns, about currents, about ocean planning. I mean, in this latest issue, which comes out on the 1st of February, I mean, you turned to me and said, look, remember there was the, the big container ship, uh, uh, One Apus, uh, in November last year that lost about 18... 100 containers in the Pacific, yeah. and they are a worry for yachtsmen. They float Well, they around. are, and I'm not so sure that people really understand the threat that there really is. Um, and actually, I ask you to do that because 
of uh, finding out of about the Vendée Globe uh, accidents. Uh, three lost their rudders uh, and had to retire because they hit stuff. Um, and my experience, not just in White Dragon, but also in Moonshadow, my previous boat, the Tayana 58 I mentioned, um, and, and before then as well in course of my first boat, my experience is there is an awful lot of stuff floating around, flotsam and jetsam, that's floating around our oceans, and you can't start expecting to go and cross an ocean hoping and praying you won't hit something. I in, mean, in the Philippines, in the Philippines, they've got something called FADs, fish aggregation devices, and they are laid by fishermen. They are, they are a 12-foot by 8-foot steel buoy that's anchored in up to 2,000 metres of water as a fishing station. You can't see them on the radar. If you hit one and you're in a five, six mil thick laid up boat, you're going to go, you're going to sink, you're going to be in the life raft. Um, and so what we wanted to do is tell people, look, guys, this is how you do it. Whatever boat you buy, just make sure you got these features. Um, and then obviously we wanted to try and explain to people, you know, a, a fair bit more about the nuances uh, and the things they needed to learn and understand. Well, certainly the industry um, have told uh, Ocean Sailor in the February issue that um, that about 1,300 containers go missing every year. A lot of people think it's a lot more than that. I mean, they say the industry would say that, wouldn't they? And the industry do concede to some extent that it can be higher. Did you say 1,300? Yes. <laughs> can be 1,800 up. were on this one ship. Exactly right. Wow, yeah. Exactly right. Um, and, but they, when I put that to them, they do concede that actually it can be as high as 10,000 a year. A lot of other people think it might even be higher than that. So we're doing our best. But anyway, that's how many the industry are admitting to going over this. They admit it can be up to 10,000 a year. It's quite yeah. a lot. A lot of them sink, of course, but the reefers, the refrigerated ones with buoyancy in them, don't. Uh, and there's a guy... Yeah, well, that's it. And so, you know, I ask you to investigate that as part of the Ocean Sailor uh, information so that people can start to form uh, the right view. Um, we can all go now um, with not really a great deal of cost uh, and have a satellite phone and link up to find out the weather. But actually, is that sufficient? Do you not need to really be and live in your environment. So last month we did all about the cloud formations that prelude uh, bad weather coming. So you can, you, can, you can live it, you can feel it, and it's, it becomes, and I do greatly believe it, this whole thing, you can't cross an ocean without feeling some kind of symbiosis with the elements uh, and the yacht and the crew. It all becomes one entity. And for those who are interested in that weather piece, uh, of course, they can go on to www.oceansailormagazine.com and get the back numbers, can't they? Yeah, they can. You, it, it, they've only got to land on the website. You can pick up any of the uh, information that's there. Okay. And, um, and backlog. Uh, and, of course, what we want people to do, and the purpose of this broad, uh, podcast is... Uh, to you know, get to a wider audience of people that are interested and people that not necessarily are going to go tomorrow or next month or next year and sail around the world, but also to the people that 
hey, could I do this? You know, what's? Yeah, I think there's a lot of people uh, stuck indoors over this last pandemic, thinking, right, okay, after after this, I'm going to do. I'm not going to put off the things that I've thought about doing. I'm going to go and do them. So we kind of that's what's led to to this. It's it's a motivation. It's come on, guys, you could do it, and and we can help you with that information. So it's a case of swapping the armchair for the armature. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear. Your puns, I do. Sorry about that. <laughs> You're listening to Ocean Sailor podcast uh, with me, Dick Durham, and with him, Dick Beaumont. Please find us, if you would, on Twitter uh, at Ocean Sailor Podcast, or even better, be part of the conversation uh, by using hashtag Ocean Sailor Podcast. On the first day of every month, don't forget, head over to www.oceansailormagazine.com and have a good old read. Uh, Dick, so the podcast, uh, is this a natural baby that's born out of Ocean Sailor? Or? Yeah, it, it all really comes about, again, more to uh, try and uh, get the message out uh, and in a way that people will can easily listen to and will assimilate with. Um, and to to build again all part of building trying to build the community, but also of course we got as I said we got a bit of time because we're all confined to barracks or as it were at the moment. The only um, waves that are available to us are the airwaves. You're back in with a pun, brilliant. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's right. I mean what we're we're looking to do. Um, we're going to publish a pub- podcast uh, every month. We're going to do a podcast every month. Um, we'll talk about the subjects and the issues that revolve around ocean sailing and world cruising. And subjects in the magazine. And subjects in the magazine, what, what's coming up, what we're going to discuss. We want to invite people to contribute uh, to that, you know, to the listeners of the podcast to contribute to that. Tell us what you'd like to hear us talking about and discussing and give us any viewpoints that you think are different to those that... Uh, you know, we're putting forward. And we're also going to try and uh, bring in each month uh, a guest to give us a different viewpoint, maybe, or different set of experiences. Um, Not necessarily somebody that sits there and agrees with everything we're saying. Hopefully we'll find a few people that, uh, you know, uh, have got vehement reasons why they think, uh, you know, what you and I believe are are not actually cast in stone. Well, it can always be edited. But... (laughs) Yeah, we'll, I'm certain we'll cut <laughs> up on the cutting room floor. But no, no, seriously, it's good. It's if, if if the subject's just out there and it's being talked about, then I think we've achieved what we're trying to do and get the subject out and and help people um, feel empowered to go and sail across an ocean. Uh, you know, it's not such a big deal, I don't think. Well, we're getting, uh, we must be getting near to the end of our uh, watch now, Dick, eh? Well, that sounded like a whistle that needs wetting. Yeah, I'll drink to that. Thanks, everybody, for uh, listening in and uh, hope you've enjoyed our first uh, uh, attempt at a podcast. Uh, and please do listen in to... Ocean Sailor Podcast. And please find us on Twitter at Ocean Sailor Podcast or be part of the conversation by using hashtag... Ocean Sailor Podcast. Thank you so much and goodbye.